So, hello everyone, and welcome to episode 33 of Hidden Wings and Bloodlusts. So, today I've got something slightly different for you. Since I started the podcast, as well as talking about different types of ladybirds, from time to time I've talked about ladybirds in popular culture, whether that is ladybirds in religion, ladybirds in fiction, and so on. And it's always been something that's captured my attention. And since I was a kid, I always loved Ladybird books. Um, I think that's probably one of the things my mum definitely thinks it's one of the things that got me into seeing Ladybirds and getting used to all the different Ladybirds and just like falling in love with the insect, really. And uh, Ladybird books is one of the, the most famous examples of popular culture that was influenced massively by Ladybirds. And today I've got a guest with me, Helen Day who runs the Ladybird Flyaway Home website, which contains a huge amount of information relating to vintage Ladybird books pre-1975. So, hello, Helen. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Hi. Yeah, not bad at all. So, do you want to say a little bit about yourself and about the website? Yeah, I'm Helen Day. I I have been collecting Ladybird books ever since my son was a baby and I started sort of retracing the things that I'd enjoyed as a child and uh, I must have the collecting gene in me because one thing led to another and I was going around car boot sales and charity shops and jumble sales and the internet was fairly in its fairly early days you know as a as a part of everyday life really then mm. and there wasn't a huge amount of information out there about the books themselves so you didn't even know yeah. what books existed um there were a few little um forums with people pooling knowledge about what was out there but I went out and I went to WH Smith's and I bought a book called teach yourself html yeah <laughs> and I'd done English at university I knew nothing about computers or anything but I I I, I built hand-coded my site HTML bit by bit. And uh, once it was up and running, I suddenly found people were contacting me and using it as a sort of hub. And I found myself collecting more and more stories about the company, about the artists, about the models. Um, and I got more fascinated, really, by the history of the mm. company and its social setting mm. than about collecting the books themselves, which I still do, of course. Um, so that's how it all got going. And now social media took over and yeah. I use social media a lot to, to share the things that I've discovered now. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. Um, I just wondered when I was looking at your website, I saw that, um, I think the main focus of it is, um, to only include books pre 1975. And I just wondered whether there's a, whether there's a reason for that. Yeah, there is. Um, in Ladybird was a small company yeah. called Wills and Hepworth. Yeah. It started, uh, well, it actually started in the 19th century mm. as a printer's. From 1940, so during the war, they started selling the small, the small books that we, we remember yeah. publishing them. Um, and they had this astronomical success curve mm. going from the Second World War to just like world domination. <laughs> um they became the name, the household name for children's publishing, yeah. for school, for teaching you to learn to read, for teaching you anything, really. Um, but 
this was all overseen by a small number of directors yeah. and they basically were old and wanted to retire in the 1970s. Yeah. So they decided to secure the employment for the employees. It would be best if they sold the company, yeah. which they did to a large conglomerate. Yeah. Now called Penguin Random House. Yeah. Um, but when they took their hand off the tiller, when they retired, mm. the company was pulled in all sorts of different directions. Yeah. And at the same time, it got a lot, lot harder to make money from what they were doing. Yeah. So there was massive cost savings and mm. photography started to replace the beautiful images. Um, and there was no one single focus. They, the, the artwork no longer was the big investment. And the quality, both of the production of the books and what they invested into the artwork, really declined. Mm. So, from that's the main reason why that's my sort of cutoff point. Though, if you go onto my website, yeah. I, mean, I do actually cover up to sort of the 1990s. The factory was finally closed down in 1999. Yeah. So, you have to have a cutoff point. Yeah. There's also nostalgia. I mean, I was born in the 60s. Mm. You're a young thing. So, you'll remember the more recent Ladybird books. Yeah. But for me, the ones I most remember were the ones I was I, I knew from school. So mm. up to the 1970s works from my nostalgia point of view as well. Yeah, I think when I, I mean, certainly when I was a kid, like in the 90s, there was still a lot of the old Ladybird books from the 60s around. But I think there are also like some new ones because I think they put out like some new ranges. I remember like they would do these condensed versions of like, fairy tales and like classic books like Sherlock Holmes and and that kind of thing I guess that started would have started in the 70s or yeah late 70s that started mm. yeah the children's classics yeah and that wasn't a bad idea really it, it ruffled a lot of feathers at the time <laughs> you can't do that to Robinson Crusoe or whatever. <laughs> um yeah <laughs> but uh yeah no I think it was probably quite a good idea to do that but yeah yeah, that was just like one of the many different directions they started pulling into. Um, the thing about the books that you said were growing up in the 90s, yeah, was still the 60s and 70s books around. One of the things they got so right was the format. So they're hardback books, which were sturdy, mm. and they just fit into a child's hands, and they lasted. Yeah, And so they didn't get thrown out, and schools would stock them. And they get used and reused and reused and not fall apart, whereas other books mm. would fall apart. So they sort of tended to outlive their their time yeah. and still be on the shelves even decades decades later and at the home you know parents mm. wouldn't chuck them out they'd pass them on to their kids and their kids would pass them on to their kids yeah so yeah that's why even the old books coexisted with the modern books I mean they're still it's it's a it's a brand name it's an mm. imprint that continues today there'll be new ladybird books coming out but yeah they focus moment on books for babies for very small mm. children mm. illustrations tend to be quite cartoony these days yeah okay so I was wondering as well if you look at the logo of the like the original logo of the ladybird it's actually an 11 spot ladybird it's quite rare and it's quite small and this is according to like a, a book by an entomologist I read which was mentioning about the ladybirds in sort of culture and stuff and it's and it's sort of it's quite a small ladybird that's not that you wouldn't necessarily think of like you know there's there's more well-known varieties and I just wondered if you if you knew why that ladybird in particular was was chosen is there like a story behind the logo well it's interesting when I when 
I start, sat and counted up the spots mm. and I couldn't get to 11. I don't know if there's a, is there a 10 spot ladybird? I don't know. There is, a, there is a, te- there is a, uh, um, there is a 10 spot ladybird. Yeah. Um, hold on a second. Yeah, there anyway, is, a, there is definitely there a 10 spot. spots. Yeah. It might be because of the spot that's in the middle, like sort of on, like between the two wings and it kind of like, Yeah. I missed it. I'm sure you're better. Yeah. I'm sure you're Don't much worry more about it. It's fine. Ladybird spots. <laughs> Don't worry about but, it. It's fine. Uh, no. Um, yeah. When the company first registered the name Ladybird, it was back in 1915, 14, no, 15 it was that they registered it. Um, and so then from 1915 until 1940, mm. they were occasionally publishing children's books, not yeah. the sort of books that you've probably got in mind when you think of a ladybird book but sort of big sort of annual like cheaply produced books yeah and they didn't have a logo at all okay the logo didn't come in until they hit on that format of that small size that came in in 1940 for the first time and then it was a ladybird in flight okay it was an, what we call the open wing ladybird yeah yeah which was um, quite an elaborate picture i mean not not what you'd think of as obviously lending itself to a logo today although it did make a very good design for the if you look at the end papers of a very mm. old book a sort of 1940s 50s book yeah um the flying lady ladybird as a repeated pattern makes mm. quite an interesting design yeah um it wasn't until about 19 early 60s mm that they moved completely to the closed wing ladybird that you're thinking of. Then it was the sort of full-on ladybird. They've played around since the 1960s with all sorts of different types of ladybird, though it seems to have the name, same number of spots on, I think. There's a story that the sort of the mastermind behind Ladybird's big success in the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s went to, I think, the Natural History Museum or, or somewhere or, or some, and uh, actually the Science Museum, I don't know, and researched Ladybirds and came up with this design. But uh, I've never heard that one. Um, okay. I've never sort of triangulated my information there. <laughs> yeah, I've just, I actually just found a um, picture of the 11 spot Ladybird and I I don't know if you will agree but i think it look i'll send it i'll i'll send it to you in the chat <laughs> or something and you can see um listen I, you don't need to because i completely bow to you on all things <laughs> physically ladybird <laughs> you can see it's whether just, in my ignorance i no, can make that number of it's 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 absolutely fine <laughs> i was just i was just curious about it because it's it's mm. just quite an unusual design i'm sure it's all done by what looked good yeah what looked it, yeah i mean know, it impact it, i think it it does look good um but yeah i just i just um i thought maybe i i uh i so i looked it up 11 spot and then it looks exactly like it so i'll send it to you afterwards <laughs> please do yeah so how many ladybird books are there or were there like in total again it depends when you start counting and when you finish counting yeah so if you count the books sort of published before the First World War, before you get mm. to that sort of small size mm. book, nobody knows because they didn't keep records of them. Oh. They didn't even log books with the British Museum. So um, new ones turn up all the time for those. If you count from 1940, when they hit upon the winning formula that led to their huge success, yeah, and then you count until I do, when they sold the company mm. in the mid-70s, you're looking at about 500, mm. 600 different books. 
But of course, as I said, they're still bringing out new books every day, mm-hmm. well, not every year. So, um, yeah, different people have their own personal cutoff points when you'd stop counting. Oh, okay. But plenty. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Then, of course, there were, over the years, a book that was printed in 1940 would look very out of date in the 1960. A book that was printed in 1960 would look shockingly and politically incorrect in 1970. And so on. So they were also having to sort of rewrite them, yeah. really straight them, yeah. and make all these changes so that the. Uh, and then, of course, it didn't really work because, like I said, the books tended to last. So even if they were terribly up to date, if you then keep it on the shelves for 10 or 20 years, the next generation, oh, God, that's old fashioned. Gosh. <laughs> you know, writing to the paper about that, you know. <laughs> so, so they were a victim of their own success in the sense that the books were so sturdy. Yeah. That's hilarious. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I also, like, I kind of wondered, um, the guy who found, so the founder of Lady Bird Books, like, do, you, do we know anything about him? It was a gradual process. So mm. um, there was a, a, a company called um, Henry Wills, and then somebody came to join the company, and then it was Wills and Hepworth. And then Wills and Hepworth was the company that hit upon that formula. Um, when Wills retired, Hepworth carries on. But there's one person called Douglas Keane who became, he was just starting out as a, a salesman, sort of traveling around the country selling mm. the books. He had this vision that Lady Byrne weren't tapping into the nonfiction market. Yeah. Because in the early days, they were making little storybooks mm. and fairy tale books and ABCs for preschool children. But after the war, um, he felt that there was this huge burgeoning of the education market, um, comprehensive schools everywhere, open education, free education for all was the big mantra. And these schools needed stock and they wanted to put the, the war years behind them and they wanted colour and vibrancy. So he felt that the format of the Ladybird book, but for an older child, so 10 and upwards, with really good, well-quality, well-researched information and beautiful illustrations, was this format, which was really sturdy and would last in libraries and on school shelves. He thought that this was the way to go. And he tried to convince the board of directors that this was the way to go. But they were very reticent. They thought that now the war was over, they should go back to just doing printing for the local uh, car businesses and doing pamphlets and booklets for the local area. And he was saying, no, 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 it's book publishing is the way to go. So he eventually managed to convince them. And as Lady Bird's star rose, so Douglas Keane's star also rose, and he rose to be managing director. And he was that hand on the tiller mm. that just oversaw all the appointment of all the artists, all, all the concepts. He'd mm. had the idea and saw it through to the book on the shelf. And so for me, he's the mastermind really yeah. of success. I think he was he was quite a, a interesting character in his own right from reading your website because wasn't he it says on your website he was also a Marxist or a socialist of some sort. Well yes, in his heart he was. At least he he, <laughs> he had had a very hard um start in life. Yeah. He was raised by a single mother. Mm. He uh, had a uh, he had very little money. Mm. He wanted to go to and study architecture but this wasn't possible yeah so he was trying to support the family yeah um so he had to um 
take whatever job he could, which was working in his printing company. Yeah, yeah. Um, when in this company, he's with very much, he was the grammar school boy with the public school yeah. board, board of directors. Yeah. And he, yeah. he had to toe the line. He had hmm. to play the game. He had to put on the voice and, 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 and espouse the sort of, way of thinking and doing yeah that 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 was was likely to lead to career success and the ability to support his family but in his heart he was not you know he was a socialist yeah um so juggling managing all that was was quite a challenge for him to an extent he uh you know he makes lots of money in the end and he has a very comfortable life and his wife never works and uh, (laughs) never drives so uh, he had a very conventional outlook on one hand the yeah. 1960s man on the other but on the other no in in his heart he was quite radical yeah um, that really came out right at the end of his career when it, the sort of the pressure was off to conform yeah and he was very into the environment and so he was very keen to ways wake people up mm. to the dangers of the post-war industrial expansion and what we were doing to the planet so that was his parting shot when he retired was to get quite evangelical about the environment yeah absolutely well like if only people had listened to him back then because he did a book which was called what on earth are we doing okay so you can't blame him for you know holding back his punches can no, you no yeah, he really tried to give it if you read it it is a bit like being slapped around the face yeah you know? yeah it's <laughs> <laughs> It's such a shame that uh, some of us will have grown up with a much more environmental awareness as a result of books yeah. like this that Ladybird started doing in the 1970s. But as you say, yeah, lots of us won't. <laughs> so, what was in like what was the most successful series, like the most popular series that you think that they that Ladybird books ever published? Um, emotionally, in terms of the book that most people ask me about now and remember with the best memories, mm. that will be the fairy tale books of the 1960s yeah. to the 70s. So Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Rumpelstiltskin, The Little Red Hen, those tales which um, were illustrated by two artists, Eric Winter and Robert Lumley. Okay. And they just hit the spot. They mm. just knew, you know, they could make take sort of realistic pictures, but give you enough sort of Disney mm. princess and rumple. You can make villains and completely fictional ogres and witches, but make them look so realistic, mm. you know, that you they, they're as real as your next door neighbour or the the man down the road is grumpy and stamps his foot. You yeah. know, it's it's it just understood what children wanted, and these pictures illustrations are just lodged in generations of children's minds and it is the ultimate version of those fairy tales so emotionally I would say the fairy tales Mm. in terms of commercial success oh absolutely the Peter and Jane reading okay which taught me to read and they taught just about everybody my generation and a little bit older too to read and they sold millions and millions and millions of these books yeah, they were in print. Where are we now? They came out in 1964 and they were still in print just a few years ago. Yeah. Oh, wow. I think I remember the um, the fairy tale books because I know that there was, I remember being quite surprised because they were like, because I know that like Snow White, the fairy tale, for instance, was a lot more in depth 
the Ladybird book was a lot more in depth than the like the Disney film version. I think the the film like left out a lot of stuff. Like I think there was like there was something like a poisoned hairpin and like a whole a whole like bunch of other things that that the uh, the Queen tried to poison Snow White with. And I think in the in the film, that's right, that's right. And the good thing about the Cinderella book that everyone remembers is the thing about when you're when you're a little girl or boy, yeah. Uh, yeah, and you're looking at these pictures. You look at the pretty dresses. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Cinderella didn't go to one ball and have one amazing ball dress like she does in most versions. She went to three different balls yeah. and had three, each one more amazing than the, the next. And, uh, and that carriage, and that carriage as well. <laughs> oh, the carriage! Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, they just hit the spot. Really, mm. they hit that fairy spot so sweetly I don't think it's ever been done and ever could be done quite so well again but maybe I'm biased but so people tell me over the years you contact me yeah that's amazing um so I mean I think Ladybird books um became quite sort of obviously they started earlier they um they started earlier than the war but they kind of the format I think it says Come, came around like sort of in 1940 and that's right that's yeah right and that was because of the war yeah yeah so in the in the first world war in 1914 they started hesitantly mm. publishing children's books because most of their personnel and their clients had gone off to the war yeah of course so they had to adapt and so they mm. started just as a stop gap doing these children's books but in the Second World War, it was the paper rationing that led them to realise that if you very carefully laid out and printed the largest then available sheet of paper, um, laid it out carefully and printed on both sides, with careful folding and cutting, you create an entire children's book from just one sheet of paper. And that was the sort of the breakthrough then, put the hard boards on it that protected it so well and you've got this winning format because you've got the text on one side and the picture on the other. Mm. And with a full page, you know, children, you know, you turn the page mm. and you don't want boring old text. You want a lovely big picture. And so filling that right hand side of every page with a photo, with a, a, a beautifully illustrated picture filled with detail, mm. it was a, it was a treat for the eyes. And I've always said that the pictures sold books. Mm. So if a child was fascinated by the picture, mm. They would then turn their attention to the text. Yeah, and that for me was what what you know that came about from that format. Yeah, because I think the um, like I I used to work in a um, in a warehouse and they um, it was the Bodleian Library because they had a a project where they had to categorise I think like most most books because I think they're like a library of le- of records so they had to basically have a copy of most. The the, yes. the majority of books that, that have been published in the UK, and there was a lot of periodicals and books and things that had been published during the war, and they had that kind of like rough paper, um, like I think less less good quality paper, um, so that um, because obviously either they couldn't afford it or it was being rationed, and. Um, I just remember like the feel of like turning the ladybird book the paper was was also quite rough and like you know especially the especially the um the bits where the pictures were oh, I wonder what you're thinking of um yeah they certainly the 
what are the joy of the really the early books, mm. the sort of 1940s to 1950s, yeah. because paper yeah. rationing carried on quite a long time after the war, was that they seemed to have been printing on just about anything they could get their hand mm. on. So you find a sort of second edition of one book and then another second edition of the same book and a third second edition of the same book. And they're all on completely different paper, you know, different colours. Um, it was whatever was around. Yeah. Um, but some of the paper was quite shiny at that mm, point. They yeah, to... I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So some of the books from the 1950s, very, very shiny paper. Um, and the, the uh, uh, late sort of 1940s books, they in those days, they all had a um, sort of boards over which you had a dust wrapper, a paper mm. dust wrapper, which was quite expensive to produce books that way. Um, and some of the series, the paper is just like tissue paper now. So it's for collectors, it's very special to get a, an edition of this book or that book with yeah, good dust wrappers because they dissolve so easily. Yeah. yeah. So no, it was they started to standardize very much from about 19, late, late 50s. Um, and then the paper quality they could assure and uh, mm. yeah, the the format sort of standardized too. Growing up as you did in the 90s, you see, they'd already broken with that format that said mm. um, the text will be on the left and the picture will yeah. be on the right. Yeah. yeah. And that's something that changed. That was, for me, part of the winning formula, which they broke when they sold the company. <sighs> yeah. So they, for me, they killed the goose that was laying the golden eggs with things like this. Yeah. I understood the need to modernize, but the format should mm. have stayed intact, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, I, I I think that format was quite quite crucial, really. Mm. And when the um, when the war or like when other yeah, basically when the war was going on, like did they ever? Because I think like now you kind of you read a Ladybird, some of the Ladybird books that have got that are sort of quite well known have got like pictures of aeroplanes or like fighter jets and stuff like when the war was going on did they publish much content to do with it like to under to make to help people understand what was happening or no I find this quite fascinating when the war was going on mm. they just doing printing children's books was stopgap it yeah. wasn't what they saw in their core business and very much as I said the books were these sort of um ABCs for preschool mm. children, little picture books for very little children. The war is a million miles away because children are little. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's nobody's, you know, trying to get information across to people. No, it's just no. escapism. It's early yeah. learning, right? Yeah. When Douglas Keane comes back, remember he's, um, he's a humanist. Yeah. He's a socialist. Mm. And all of the these people have fought in the war they're under no illusion about the absolute worst side of human nature and the horrors mm. of war they've come back from the war they've picked up the reins and the last thing they want to do is dwell on it yeah yeah so you say that ladybird books have these sort of airplanes and they actually don't yeah yeah it's fascinating for the 50s 40s 50s even the 60s it's I, when I was growing up in the early in the late sixties, early seventies, the war yeah. was still everywhere in popular yeah. culture. You know, mm. the Great Escape, the Wooden Horse, uh, all on all the television all the time in the playground. We, you know, the baddies were always the Germans and always had German accents if they yeah. were Russian. Yeah, um, it, 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 the war was so still real in popular culture. You've got Eagle magazine and Dan Dare, oh yeah, casting yeah. Into space the same vehicles of war and and sort of protection and defence. Um, 
And in Ladybird, next to nothing. Mm, mm. You've got a whole book on a whole book on Elizabeth Gaskell. Oh, okay. A whole book on Charles Dickens, on uh, Michael Faraday, on Marie Curie, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill gets one single page in one single book. In the books about war and weapons and arms, it's all about, you know, the, 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 the 30 years' war, um, the English Civil War. Well, they'll, they are happy to go back to Nelson, but yeah. not into the 20th century, if they could at all help it. You know, not until they sold the company, and then they started bringing in books a bit more about the later part of the 20th century. Okay, yeah, because, um, yeah, so I suppose as well, like, they, they'd only just... You know, if people just came back from war, then they wouldn't really want to think about it. Or, yeah, because clearly some people did, because as I've said, there was lots yeah. of war in popular culture at yeah, that time. But Ladybird seemed to take the view. Certainly, Douglas Keane, mm-hmm. who was steering the ship by then, yeah, no, no, it was not a question of being naive. It was yeah. a question of wanting to put it behind you, exactly, and be positive and yeah. be, look at the exciting things that the future holds. Yeah, space. Hovercraft. Oh, I remember. I remember the. Hover, I, I remember. I think I remember the the uh, the Marie Curie book. Um, there you we go. had a because at my school there was a li- there was a uh, a library. There was like a like a reading corner with like all of these, and I think it had like maybe like half, either like a third or half of them were like old ladybird books <laughs> classy classy established yeah you know that um that Marie curie book was actually illustrated by frank hampson oh, okay who, who created and illustrated dan dare for oh wow magazine yeah so, yeah that's really interesting yeah so um i wanted to um to ask you um you know how in the especially in the sort of 50s and i think so I suppose like the fifties with like um a lot of the um campaigns against communism or like the the um the seventies where they had uh, people like Mary Whitehouse and and uh, and people trying to um who uh, who who tried to like um put basically wanted to control the amount of um certain topics that were in the media and like in in books and films and things. Um, I wondered if Ladybird books, like whether there is ever any sort of attempts at censorship or whether they ever got in trouble for anything. Um, they got in trouble for everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, they did because the the thing about Ladybird was again they're sort of a victim of their own success. Wherever there were children, there were Ladybird books. They were at Sunday schools. They were in in junior schools. They were in secondary schools. They were in public libraries. They were in people's homes. They sold them in knitting shops. They sold them in groceries. Yeah, grocery stores. They were everywhere. And so, once they became a household name, everyone had a sort of ownership of them. And so, there was always somebody very keen to write in and complain. You know, if you're researching your books pre-internet, think how hard it was actually. You know, they had very short timescales for the writers and the artists to pull these books together. Very Research took a lot, lot longer. You couldn't just Google what, I don't know, the mallard, the livery of the mallard was like when it broke the, you know, you just had to sort of get your black and white pictures and, and have a go. Um, so they made mistakes. The quality was really important to them, and they did try to 
far as they could, but they got things wrong. Uh, sometimes quite hilariously. So I just I, I put out on on Twitter last night one of my favourite misprints in what to look for in winter, where um, yeah they were busy telling children that uh, the berries of I think it was ivy or, or I forgot what it is. Um, uh, 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 it said it's not poisonous. And in fact, what they meant was they're also poisonous. Um, and they didn't withdraw the books. They just put a little, a, a humble little errata slip on the front of the cover and just carried on pumping them out. Um, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't issue a correction or anything or like, or just a little, little slip that went on the, on the dust, <laughs> dust flap, nice and coily. You know, who many, who, how many knows how many kids sort of find it? Pre- it'd be pretty easy to, uh, to 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 ignore the slip or I imagine all because well who knows how many knows <laughs> what the population would be today if Ladybird hadn't had withdrawn their first edition of that <laughs> um they would go out things like suggesting you keep um barn owls and adders as pets um it was quite you know at times they were quite kind of gung ho about uh, about their suggestions if you look at the very first edition of the what beautiful what to look for books and then the subsequent editions you see someone who's an expert in fungi has gone through the books oh you can't say that don't say that oh no don't say that and they've sort of scored out all these suggestions about eating and tasting this that and the other so <laughs> there's one <laughs> lovely uh, scene I remember from mm. uh, one of the Peter and Jane books. It's called, I think, Mountain Adventure. Mm, mm. And the artist had got his son and a piece of rope and it wrapped a bit of rope around him and got him <laughs> to hold a pose. And this then picture becomes of this boy abseiling down a rock. Now, he's actually just got a piece of rope that went once round him and not, not round to anything else and just sort of like gone from one hand to the other and yeah. he's abseiling down. And it's the... What, I think the front cover book. So the abseiling uh, society was straight on there going, what are you doing? You were like, <laughs> I don't know how many children were sent plunging to their deaths by, by, <laughs> by, uh, by that mistake. But uh, they did try, but they made mistakes. And because they were just so ubiquitous, mm, mm. Uh, they had, um, I remember in the, um, the Ladybird book, My Body. Oh, yeah. And they had... On the end papers, I think it is, they have a completely naked man, woman, a boy and a girl. I know. And the number of letters that generated the shock and horror of showing <laughs> naked people in a children's book. It's quite brave <laughs> to do it really when it came out. Did they ever did the government like ever try and like stop certain books from publication or say that not that I know of. Okay. No, not yeah. That I know of. I yeah, I no. wouldn't I wouldn't have I wouldn't have thought so. It'd probably just be like outraged. No, it was outraged, Out, outraged of the public. Outraged of um, the abseiling yeah. society or the, the fungi yeah, or like club. or like someone <laughs> someone unhappy with uh, with nudity or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Then of course, by the nineteen sixties, when you were this huge um there were thirty-six books in the Peter and Jane series. And it had been illustrated in quite a retro sort of style, even when it came out in the mid-60s. So even for me, it was quite oldie-worldie. And I was sort of, I, I was born the same year they first came out. By the 70s, you've got, you know, the, the, the uh, Sex Equality Act, uh, Women's Lib. Um, you've got the, the wind, jet, wind rush has been and gone several times and the, 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 the uh, makeup of Britain had changed so much 
the, the books which were looking a little bit oldie-worldy in the 60s looked archaic in the 70s. So they went to the huge expense of re-illustrating them completely. Oh, okay. Um, so there's two versions, basically two main versions of all the Peter and Jane books, mm. one done in the 60s, one done in the 70s. And one in the 70s has Jane on roller skates rather than pushing a pram. And everyone looks messy. Their hair is a bit untidy. And and it's just quite interesting to compare them and to ask yourself these questions about you know popular culture and society. That's really what interesting. What is acceptable yeah. about the books in the 60s that's now acceptable all the other way around in the yeah. 70s? Yeah, that's really One of the main ones that always strikes me is sweets. Oh, yeah. In the 1960s, the kids are always going to sweet shops. Yeah. And in the 1970s, they couldn't mess around with the text very much because the text had been carefully worked out on a, on a particular sort of strategy. Um, so they had to sort of all the shops become fruit shops and Peter and Jane are begging mummy for an apple rather than you know, half a pound. Well, don't, a, don't, think that's very, don't think that's very realistic. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember doing that in the <laughs> 1970s, but I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so... I actually didn't know that Ladybird books had like um, were still going. I actually thought they'd stopped publishing. Um, are they like because because I can't remember. I mean, I suppose because you you said that they that this the new Ladybird books are still coming out like every every day. Um, no, yeah, that was a mis- that was a I misspoke. They're not every day, but you you'll have the odd one every you know a few a year. Yeah, okay. Well, you have to. I don't, I don't really know how publishing works in this sense, but yeah, you've got to sort of distinguish. For me, you distinguish between the company that was Wilson Hepworth mm. producing Ladybird books. Yeah, and a very large conglomerate. I mean, massive conglomerate on the scale of Penguin Random House. Yeah, where Ladybird is a brand. Yeah. It's just a name that you'll put on certain books. Yeah. For me, those are two completely different things. Yeah. But yes, the brand is still going forward. Um, and so over lockdown mm. this year, for example, I don't know if you remember the What to Look For books, which were What to Look For in Spring, Summer, Autumn, yes. Winter, which were huge bestsellers and got so many children to love nature. Mm. Um, and the illustrations by a very well-known artist called uh, C.F. Tunnicliffe, Charles Tunnicliffe. Yeah, yeah. Worked beautifully with um, Grant, Thompson, uh, Grant Watson's text. Yeah. And this beautiful combination that just taught you to love nature. Mm, yeah. If you lived on the edge of a town, they were realistic goals. Anyway, these books have been adored by generations of people. And so... Penguin Random House decided to do an updated version this year. So they've published What to Look For in Spring. They've used the same title. That's lovely, yeah. I haven't yet held a copy of these books. Um, I don't buy modern books just because I'm interested in the old ones. They look to me to be very, very different things and targeted much more at younger children. Yeah, um, yeah. And a bit more cartoony. Mm. But... Uh, you know, they they are still trying to find new ways mm. to use their sort of heritage, yeah, and that still groundswell of generally positive feeling, yeah, towards the brand to find ways to be relevant today, yeah. I mean, one thing that lots of people associate with Ladybird today mm. is the pastiche books that came out over the last three, four, five years. I was years. actually going to ask you what you thought of those. 
Well, um, I, I, the, I'll just prefix this by saying they are done brilliantly in mm. the sense of reproducing exactly mm. the format, the layout, the fonts, the style mm. of a real Ladybird book. What people don't realise is turn them over and they're published by Michael Joseph. Okay, yeah. So they're not actually lady. I call them pretend ladybird yeah. books because I yeah. think the word pretend is it's perfect for childhood. It's it's about play and having fun. Wasn't there like some? Wasn't there like a? Because um, I know that there was, there was the, there were some ladybird books that were like a parody, and then there was the other. There was like a some copyright dispute, and then there was another one that had to call itself dung beetle books or something. Yeah. Yeah, well, almost as long as there have been ladybird books, there have been spoofs. People have pastiched them. It's very easy to do. It's quite fun to do. So these people doing this sort of thing have been around for ages. Um, one beautiful one was done um, about a few years ago, about six years ago, I guess, by an artist called John Bentley. And he actually wanted to produce an actual book with his sort of artistic interpretation. He called it a homage to Peter and Jane. Um about a year later, uh, an artist called Miriam Elia, Elia mm. and her brother, I think Ezra, yeah. um, together came up with a brilliant but very hard-hitting spoof of the art world yeah. called We Go to the Gallery. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think Miriam is she uh, i think she's she works at one level she's published for the mm. random house i think in america but penguin uh, penguin random house were not happy with her for selling these books as ladybird books yeah yeah um i i can't really comment on this i mean yeah whatever but um but at the same time then when penguin was scratching their heads how to sort of what to do about this um, they got a proposal from two comedy writers, uh, Jason Hazley and Joel Morris, who'd, who'd independently come up with the idea of doing a spoof lady, but each person thinks they've invented the format. You know, they think they've come up with this idea. Um, and they came up with, and they have a track record in in, in doing pastiche versions of well-loved things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think Penguin Random House, I think, turned around and said, yes, go for it. Yeah. So it became cast, I don't know if it really was, but it came as this sort of... Um, sort of three-way war, if you like, yeah. for a few years. Yeah. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, they're all very... The ladybird books are one thing. Mm. What Miriam Elia produced was one thing. And what Morris and Hazley produced is something different. Mm. And there's there's room for all of them, really. That's my, that's my view on it. Yeah. As long as you don't muddy the waters too far and forget what's real and, and, and what's pastiche. Yeah. Because, like, the... I know that the... Um... The, I think we. I think I was actually given one, like one, one year for, um, like as a present, and it was like, I think it. I think it was like some, like the Ladybird Guide to Brexit, or you know, or something like that. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> there was one of them called Brexit. Yeah, <laughs> they've done that one, and then they did one called Donald Trump. Oh yeah, yeah. Got a big orange on the front. Yeah, <laughs> and I think probably every student who has been who started university in the last five years, probably three years, got got given the how it works. The student. Yeah, um, and there was like husbands and wives probably like, gave each other ha, one of these. How for, it um, how it works the husband and like that there was, that's I think it. There was how it works the wife and there was like how it works the hipster or something as well. <laughs> that's <laughs> it. Well, that was in the very first batch that they did. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But um 
yeah. So what they did with those books was, see, the, Miriam's were quite different. Miriam, in, in her latest version, incarnation mm, of the books, mm. she it, she's an artist and she produces new artwork. Yeah, yeah. So it looks like a ladybird book, but it's new artwork painted by her. Yeah. What Morris and Hazley did was use pictures that had already been created for vintage ladybird books. Yeah. Piece them together from all over the place. You'd have one picture would be from Rumpelstiltskin and the next would be how it, uh, learning to knit and the next book would be from the British Book of Birds. Mm. You know, they, they sort of stitched it together with new text. Yeah. So they're really quite different. They're quite different beasts. Yeah. I would say. That was really interesting. Um, so, so I just wondered, um, um, the, uh, the company, I mean, it's, it seems to have, it seems to ha- just have like a really, like a very diverse range of people involved and they seem to like have had a lot of different life experiences, especially like after, like, you know, especially after the war and stuff and, and to be honest, like that's actually a lot more than than what I thought because I had this. I did actually, I don't actually confess. I had this image of them as being very written by very old fashioned people, um, but it, but obviously that obviously that kind of wasn't wasn't the case. Um, do you think it? Do you think it was a good company to work for? Like obviously, um, like did they? Did they? I guess they did. They treat their staff well or. It was an excellent company to work for. Um, you, you, there is, I found over the years, I found a couple of artists had complaints. Yeah, one back in the nineteen forties, and another one complained about irregular payments in the nineteen sixties. But I've had so many positive reports from people over the years. Now that you've got to separate two things, you've got the factory, which was in Loughborough, and a huge employer in the lo- local area. So it's how did they treat those staff and then in Douglas Keane's world he wasn't based in Loughborough at all he lived he'd worked from mostly from his house in Stratford-on-Avon and he had artists who were all freelance and writers who were all freelance and so he's coordinating people all over the place just matching people with commissions so as you say he got such a range he loved Douglas Keane loved expertise he loved a boffin he loved somebody who was on top of their field such that they could break down what they um, what they know and a huge amount of knowledge into bite-sized chunks that will enthuse but not patronise children. So that's what he was always looking for in the writers. And then he would match the style of the artist to that commission. So, you know, C.F. Tunnicliffe was superb for the What to Look For books, but wouldn't have worked for Peter and Jane. You know, um, Harry Wingfield was absolutely brilliant for... Peter and Jane books, but wouldn't have. And a few artists like Martin Aitchison could be very you know, diversify. But as a result, yeah, you've you've got all these people from different works of life. Uh, one thing, common thing, I would say is very often, at least in the early days, in the fifties and sixties, particularly the artists were towards the end of their careers, and writing or illustrating for a children's book especially before Lady Bird was a very big name, was for many artists a bit demeaning, you know. They, were, they saw themselves as great artists or, you know, who'd, who'd been work, preparing for a life in fine art, and society portraiture, and suddenly the war, 
they're going away to war. They face a lot of hardships during the war. They come home again, huge unemployment. And there were so many brilliantly skilled commercial artists. Competition was fierce. And they were often really badly mistreated. So to be able to sort of cope with that, very often what they really wanted was regular and well-paying work where you were paid online. And that's what Lady Bird was very good at doing. They didn't pay royalties, except in one or two very rare exceptions. You got a flat fee when you presented your final portfolio of 24, maybe 25 boards, illustrations. And the artists, when they prevent, uh, presented their final, uh, the writers, when they presented their script, you got a one-off payment. And that was it. So you wanted to present your work and get paid. The artists, for the most part, all say that Lady Bird was excellent for that. Um, in terms of the factory in Loughborough, everybody says it was like a family. It was like a family. And when the factory closed in 1999, it closed on April Fool's Day. People say it was a very oh bitter my. joke for the company. Yeah. When it closed, it was really was like a bereavement. Oh, no. Yeah. It really was. So um, even today, they, you know, the factory ex-employees hank, you know, think back mm. so fondly to those days. Yeah, I think when I was working in a wet, when I was working in the Bodleian, um, like because a lot of the time we were like reading the books that we were like packing up and <laughs> of course you were stuff. Um, I think like it was, I mean, that was it. There was also. You, you kind of like you had a lot of fun while doing it like everyone like you know some from time to time you like pick out being like reading it like oh what what's this like <laughs> you know it was a lot it was a, and I mean always I'll it was over 10 years ago now but I'll always remember that that job with a lot of um good memories about it so I kind of I can I can just imagine actually exactly yeah. that's exactly how they describe it the sort of the jokes and the, yeah <laughs> yeah the banter oh uh, so what's your what's your favorite ladybird book or series <laughs> that's like asking me you know asking someone what their favorite child is <laughs> <laughs> um i will cheat and i will pick out something like five right so when i was a baby when i was little what book did i really really love as a child i loved cinderella and sleeping beauty probably my two very favorite tales i loved the history books yeah and if any book came out that was about a woman, I was down that bookshop yeah. paying, pay, spending my pocket money on it. So yeah. like Florence Nightingale and Joan of Arc. And, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but my absolute favourite was Elizabeth I. It was called The First Queen Elizabeth. And I read and reread it and reread it. And I just devoured every... I mean, I've got a master's in history now. And mm. I'm quite sure if I get a question right on Mastermind or heaven forbid university challenge today, it's all due to those ladybird books. <laughs> so no, I devoured them. Um, today I, I got an exhibition oh, right. which is touring the country. Okay. It's called the wonderful world of the ladybird book artists. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I've been particularly interested in the art and artwork that the artists produced for mm, Ladybird mm. and what else they were doing. Yeah. So some artists might illustrate for Ladybird, but mm. they're also doing those amazingly evocative 
railway posters, yeah, yeah. you know, Visit Britain sort of posters. Oh, yeah. Or Brookbond tea cards that when I was little, you used to get collect tea cards. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they used to do Look and Learn magazine or Eagle magazine. Oh, right, um, yeah. Treasure. Um, all sorts of things which were sort of like the wallpaper to childhoods in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. Mm. The same artists, because they were all freelance, were also working for Ladybird. So my exhibition takes the work that they did for Ladybird, but also it's a bit of a nostalgia fest because it sort of shows the other stuff that they were doing at the same time. Um, so as an adult, I've really got very, very fond of some artists, um, Martin Aitchison, because he was the only one of the great Ladybird artists that I was a friend of. I knew him. He lived to 96, nearly 97, um, and he was just lovely. And he was fascinating because he worked in the war, um, uh, helping Barnes Wallace design the bouncing bomb. And, you know, so he has a career that goes from that to being one of the first artists to illustrate Peter and Jane. It's very, like, very um, drastic career change. <laughs> just <Yeah>. a bit, <laughs> just a bit. Is he um, the one who's... He... got artists like... Sorry, mm. is he the one who is deaf? Yes, that's right. He was very hard of hearing throughout his life. Um, got, yeah, very deaf by the end. But, you know, it, it, his... Um, I don't know. His personality is just all I remember. I don't remember that side to him, to be honest with you, because he just found a way to engage yeah, with you. Yeah, and yeah. Um, and he's just lovely gentleman. So I'm very yeah. fond of him. And there's another artist who I never quite met. Mm. I wish I had um, called John Berry. OK. Who did the most amazing photorealism. Mm. So in his books, he did the People at Work series. Oh, yeah. So yeah. the policeman. The nurse, yeah. the shipbuilders, the car makers in a big store, um, the fishermen, and so on. Documenting Britain's tr post-war transition, really, from heavy manufacturing right in the services, right the way through to um, yeah, the service sector. Um, and his photorealism is such that it's just like photographs, but with that extra warmth and engagement you get from, from a picture. I find his work fascinating. And I'd have to pick out one more, rather than a book, one more artist who's Ronald, Ronald Lampitt, who the older I get, the more I love anything illustrated by Ronald Lampitt. So, yeah, my interest sort of shifted from the books, really, to the context mm. and the individuals. Yeah. Yeah, because I think the... I mean, I remember when um, when I was at school, like, you, um, I think there was the one... I know they did one about space and they did one about computers, and of course, the computers that they had in those books were like, even when I was school, when even when I was at school, they were still like very much bigger than how, um, than how, because um, I think we had like some of the probably had like some early computers, but like they had, um, like the the ones that were kind of like fill a room sort of thing. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, the first how it works, the computer came out in nineteen seventy one. Mm, mm, mm. This is the point at which Ladybird's focus on the modern world and on technology, which they they always loved in their books, <laughs> suddenly became a real problem because the world was changing so fast. Mm. Technology was changing so fast, but it took a year to produce a book. And then, as I've said, they, the books would stay on the shelf for, for decades. Yeah. <laughs> so 
Um, yeah. They then re- rewrote it in 1979 to try and make all the changes, you know. Yeah. Um, of course, by 1981, that's going completely out, of, <laughs> completely out of date again. But yeah, it's lovely to look back at those early books and see mm. a small for the modern businessman. And as you say, yeah. it sort of takes yeah. up my into the space of my entire living room. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, I think... Um, because sometimes I think, especially because of those um, those satires and those like spoofs, um, like I mean, I think they they are sometimes seen as a bit old fashioned. Do you think like, um, but I mean, do do you think that's sort of do you think that's sort of changed? Like, do you think people have got more? I think especially there's a lot of I say there's, there's a lot of nostalgia like these days, isn't there for for. Um, for ladybird books and like people who i think that's the right i think you, everything goes has cycles yeah it? yeah so once as i've said they desperately tried to be cutting edge <laughs> when they came out quickly got outdated um and then there was a long period when people reacted against them so from the 70s and 80s everything went very anti-ladybird they were seen as oh britain's changed so much they're very white they're very very um very male gender stereotypes there blah 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 blah. um and so lady bird was busy running trying faster to try and really and eventually when they sold the company they sort of changed direction a little bit so that they took the pressure off themselves in that that sort of sense but the anti-negative old-fashioned fuddy-duddy too white too 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 gendered these books went through a long phase like that until I think people enough time had passed for them people to stop to start realizing that they were the product of their time and as the product of time they are fascinating and that's what I love about them it's not about being relevant it's about being little slices of social history those pictures those images are fascinating. They may not represent how society was in the 50s or 60s or 70s. They're an interpretation of that. And you can then say, well, why did they portray it like that? What were they thinking when they emphasised that and didn't emphasise the other? Was 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 it so white? And actually, maybe it was in that canty. Maybe it did look like, maybe it didn't. And asking those questions is what fascinates me. And if you sort of step back a little bit, See them as this product of their time and don't try and see them as anything that other than that you realize actually yeah it's really interesting yeah you might feel smug about today they did a lot better then yeah so for example in you, when I look back at the books yeah mum's in the kitchen generally cooking dad's outside generally uh hog, you know, cleaning the car or cutting down logs oh yeah I, I remember but, cleaning the car once <laughs> But the children are doing both jobs. Mm-hmm. So the boys are very often helping mum yeah. in a frilly apron. Yeah, yeah. And the girl will be out hauling logs with daddy in the garden or cleaning the car as well. Yeah. And I wonder how many books really put, you know, there's no pink or blue. Exactly, in yeah. Ladybird books. Yeah. There were no books ever were marketed for boys or for girls. Yeah. Not one. Not in the whole period of the 20th century mm. was there one ladybird book marketed, this is for boys or this is for mm. girls. They didn't even colour code them like that. No. If you were interested in pirates, you bought the book on pirates. If you were interested in butterflies and moths and other insects, yeah. you bought that book. If you were interested in history, you bought that book. Yeah. They might be red, green or blue. You know, they they didn't 
direct boys to these ones and girls the other. There might have been an assumption that boys would tend yeah. to favour these yeah. books. Yeah. But that was no way was that was marketed. Um, in the books, childhood is very much less gendered. Yeah, yeah. It, boys are skipping and painting and picking flowers, you know. Yeah. Girls are climbing mm. trees and, and, you know, mucking around. They're not... And when you look at what's on sale today in shops, mm, mm. it's all the uni- fluffy pink unicorns and um, yeah. sparkly stuff for girls. And uh, I don't know. I, I I just think we've lost something mm. as well as gained something. Yeah. So, and I just find that both looking at both yeah. sides of it is yeah. fascinating. Definitely. And seeing it that way is what you have to do rather than judging. Yeah, of course. What's the point of judging a book that's 60, 70, 80 years old? Yeah, no, exactly. There's, there's no point. Um, yeah, I mean... Also, like, I mean, I was quite interested um, from what you said about how in the seven, how in the seventies they tried to like they redid a lot of the illustrations and they made um, like the, the. I mean, I think I'm, I think, uh, and they made a lot of the um, the illustrations. I suppose like feature more people of color, like more people, um, like less, like less of gendered jobs and that sort more of diversity. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There yeah. was just generally more diversity introduced. Yeah. 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 Yeah, they tried. They tried. Yeah. I think it was just not only had society changed radically, but Ladybird saw itself still in this as this Loughborough provincial printers who was publishing children's books. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't have this long, long history of being a children's publisher. Yeah. And so they were quite slow to realise mm. that they had a sort of social responsibility. Yeah. To yeah. portray society as it was, even yeah. as it should be. And not just getting the artists to paint their own families, you know, not <laughs> yeah. just what was under their own noses and what they were familiar with. Mm. So it took them they were a bit slow off the mark to see, mm. to take on that, to realise yeah. they have that responsibility. Yeah. Because they just... Were, I suppose were, they didn't, didn't see it as their job. Yeah. It's not that they didn't see it, they just hadn't dawned on them, mm. I think, really. Yeah. Uh, almost as the success had taken them so much, it happened so quickly. They, they were slow to adapt. Yeah, because I think, I mean, were they ever published in in any other language, or was it just oh, in gosh, the UK? Yes, I find it remarkable. But yes, they've been translated. Would you believe into about sixty different languages? Oh wow, they are huge in the Arab world. I have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. Yeah, um, about Lady Bird, and uh, and so many people from uh, Arab speakers mm. all over the world um, have huge collections of Lady Bird books, but all in Arabic. That's fantastic. Um, and you yeah. think so much of it is so Anglo Eurocentric, if not Anglo-centric, Eng- England-centric, I would really say, because um, how do these illustrations and concepts from the 1960s England, not so much Scotland and Wales, you know, yeah. how do they translate in, in Tanzania? I don't really know, but that's fascinating. Lebanon, you know. Mm. That's fascinating. But you'd expect to find them maybe in Australia, in Canada, in, in New Zealand, but no, they. You can um, somebody Everywhere. contacted me yesterday yeah. asking about looking for what to look for in in spring in Dutch or in um, there's they, there's there's ladybird books in Zulu in Maltese in Serbia. Yeah. yeah, I suppose they I suppose because they're um because they're you know I mean like like spring is spring like pretty much in a lot in a lot of different countries and i suppose that well it's spring yeah spring with these wildflowers and these bees yeah. in a very small circle <laughs> i mean i'm not sure even in continental europe they could have quite the same wildflowers as we uh, have yeah, that's example. true but i suppose <laughs> i suppose like a nurse like the nurse 
is still like the look through the illustrations and ask yourself like until recently i'm not like, even sure that holds true i don't know whether they just seem very exotic or what but i suppose it's yeah one country they never really took off in was america mm. so um another thing i found quite interesting is like you wrote on your website that the ladybird books um i think they they cost they cost sort of less than a shilling, and I think there are always. Did you say that they were always the same price um, from when they? They were... cost two and six. No, they cost a lot more. They cost two shillings and sixpence. Okay, which probably was a lot of money in nineteen forty. Yeah, yeah. Well, but they were adamant that they would not put the price mm, up. Mm. So all the way up until decimalisation in nineteen seventy. Yeah. Um, they stayed at two and six. Yeah. And they were even hoping post decimalization that they would keep it at two and six. Yeah. Uh, sorry, at 12 and a half P. Um, but of course, as we know, with decimalization, we got a load of inflation in the yeah. 70s and it yeah. just wasn't possible. Yeah. But no. Um, so as their print runs got bigger and they got more commercially savvy and they found cost cutting ways, for example, not offering books with dust wrappers. And the, you know, the larger print runs, the larger volumes of sales meant that they were able to keep the book at the same price for 30 years. So how much would that be worth in today's money? Um, Ooh, 12. It was 12 and a half P mm. in decimalization. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know, a modern Ladybird book, how, I don't know how much that would cost now. They pegged them at around three pounds for a long time but i think mm. if you look at one of the ones they've been publishing recently they're probably closer to six pounds three pounds so, that's quite any- that's quite expensive because i thought i because i i don't remember them being that much when i was a kid no no they weren't uh well no they weren't when you were a child when were you born may i ask uh 1988 1988 yeah <laughs> okay yeah no they would have been something like 90p mm. okay a yeah pound. yeah Oh, when you sense. were born yeah but they i when i said three pounds mm. i mean sort of like five years ago they were still selling books for about three pounds yeah recently yeah i think they've the price has sort of gone up quite a lot i don't i i mean i'm 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 right out of my territory yeah. here but yeah, i think there's what to look for books for example yeah. probably are selling for about mm. six pounds each something like that oh, i found guess. It quite so sorry. um i just know that when i was growing up mm. i had 30 pence pocket money yeah yeah and a ladybird book then cost about 24p oh, okay. or 30p. Yeah. So I could buy a ladybird book with my pocket money. Oh, okay. I um I'm surprised cuz actually like it just I mean I I know that I've bought like sort of novels that are obviously a lot thicker than ladybird books for around sort of 6 or 7 pounds like I think usually like 7.99 or something from like WH Smiths. I found it quite interesting that you were saying that um one of you were saying that um I can't remember the exact amount, um, but like some Ladybird books today can go for like hundreds of pounds. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have to remember that there's there's people wanting the books for nostalgia, and a whole most Ladybird books are not rare even today. As you no. said, they were well made, mm. they lasted, they still last today. You yeah. can go onto eBay. Yeah, um, you can buy books. Mm. Old books from the 60s and 70s. They were printed in by the 60s, by the 70s. The print runs were huge. So there were loads of them. But if you go back to the 1940s, the 50s, when Ladybird was still finding its feet, deciding whether it was or wasn't a publisher, print runs were very much smaller. Books, as we've said, the paper was a lot more delicate. So, and sometimes they would maybe print a 
book and it's a huge failure. And so they stop printing it. Oh, yeah. As with any area of collecting, it's not just nostalgia, but it's also scarcity. So if you're a collector as opposed to a nostalgia fiend, um, nobody will remember um, Jonathan's Shopping Day or High Tide or The Impatient Horse because they weren't successful at the time. But for the collector, that's the one you want. Exactly. So people will pay big money for rarity. Yeah, that's, yeah, I suppose, yeah, that that's 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 really... That's really interesting. So I just wondered, because I think I asked everyone this who comes on the show, have you seen any ladybirds recently? Like a real one? I have. Oh. I have a book shed in my garden. Yeah. Um, where I keep lots and lots and lots of my books, and it's sort of my sanctuary and my retreat. And it's painted a lovely sort of greeny, sagey green colour. Okay, yeah. And the ladybirds show up beautifully when they <laughs> land on there. So, uh, <laughs> I love seeing a ladybird on my ladybird shed. Yeah. <laughs> and this year I have seen a few. Oh, so that's great. Hopefully they're doing well this year. I really hope so. I think they are doing I think they are doing quite you've well. You've got to love a ladybird, haven't you? A loveliness of ladybird books. Exactly. Do you know which ones you've seen or 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 not? Oh heavens, no, I couldn't even count the ones on the books I collect, could I? How on earth would I be expected to? <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry no, i'm sorry i'm i'm uh, no no i just it's just because i ask everyone i ask i usually ask everyone this who like comes they're not the scary foreign invaders no. they're the respectable old-fashioned ones but <laughs> <don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, so um is there any i just wondered if there is there anything else you want to talk about or um about ladybird i think i've got to go I to be honest with you yeah so. same um i think we've covered everything haven't we i think we have yeah well thank you so much for coming on the show My it was pleasure. really really interesting and um always enjoyable yeah no it was it was re- yeah it was really interesting and um oh is there any do you want to say like what the address of your website is and how the listeners can find can find you well, yes, if you want to know any more, uh, my website is ladybirdflyawayhome.com. And you can find me on Twitter, which is lbflyawayhome. And uh, feel free, if anyone's listening, to get in touch. Uh, yeah, always happy to talk, Ladybird. And you said that the ones I know about, <laughs> not the ones I don't obviously know anything about. So, do, um, and what's the Facebook co- um, group called? Uh, it's just, I think, uh, old ladybird books. So just basically, if you search in in, in uh, for for a Facebook group, yeah, you'll find us. Okay, cool. Oh. But if you go onto my website, the the direct links are all there. Okay, thank you. Okay, my pleasure. <laughs>